I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. I'm Anita Rao. And I'm Sandra Davidson. Welcome to our 10th episode. Whoop, whoop. Anita, double digits. How does it feel? It feels awesome, <laughs> just like normal. Slight technical challenges. I'm just doing gymnastics here in the background, um, but very exciting. I'm very proud. Yes, as am I. Anita and I will be sharing a mic tonight, so bear with us. Um, we are cruising off of our vibes, generally speaking, in 2016. So the media site Be Your Own Muse listed us as one of the seven podcasts that they think will inspire young creatives and entrepreneurs in 2016, which is pretty cool. And we're in good company with TED Radio Hour, Startup, and On Being. In other news, we have a couple of exciting things in store in the coming months. The first is that on Sunday, January 24th, Anita and I will be hosting the third annual Meredith College Film Festival. It's a documentary film festival focused on films by and about women, and it is open to the public, so we expect to see you there. Check out our Facebook page for more details, and we'll talk even more about it in the next week with some of the festival's filmmakers. So the most exciting thing we have going on right now, though, is our episode tonight. It has been quite an interesting year for women in comedy. Amy Schumer has taken the world by storm with her self-deprecating and zany comedy sketches. Kate McKinnon is following in the footsteps of Amy Poehler and Tina Fey, killing it on SNL. Jessica Williams also killing it and raising, rising the ranks of The Daily Show. And Samantha Bee is soon to become the lone woman on late night television with her new show, Full Frontal. So with all that in mind, we wanted to take a look at the art of comedy and also how gender fits into the picture. So we've invited three of the Triangle Area's most talented comics to join us in the studio tonight. Welcome, everybody. <laughs> Thank hey, you. Hey, thanks. <laughs> with us tonight is Ashley Melzer, the Associate Artistic Director of Chapel Hill's legendary improv theater, Dirty South Improv, or DSI as it's known locally. Welcome, Ashley. Thank you. Uh, we are with Bianca <laughs> Cassie Soul. Thank you. Inside joke, everyone. <laughs> uh, a performer and instructor at DSI and also the co-founder of the Magnets Poetry Meets Improv show, Kiss Punch Poem. Welcome, Bianca. Thanks. Hey. And Aaron Terry, the Raleigh-based comic behind the Eyes Up Here showcase. Welcome, Aaron. We're happy to have you. My pleasure. So um, we know that all of you came to comedy and from a variety of backgrounds. Maybe, Bianca, you could start uh, first because you actually started in high school. Is that right? Oh, yeah. Um, so I started doing comedy, but not like for realsies, not on comedy stages. Uh, 
in like my high school program had a little bit of an improv portion to the like drama uh, program where we did like Viola Spool and theater games, which is what a lot of short form is sort of uh, based out of. Uh, so I did that and then didn't do it for a super long time after that and then found it again in New York. What got you cool. back into it in New York? Oh, uh, I always feel like I should say something better than this because the actual story is, is kind of embarrassing. I was really into it, but I just didn't pull the trigger. Like, I kept on going to see shows, but just classes weren't coming through. And, like, I dated a guy who did it, and it didn't end well. And I was like, oh, screw that guy. I'm going to get better at this than him. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, That's awesome. <laughs> That's a perfectly ridiculous. great reason to do that. Uh, Ashley, so you found it in a very different way. Can you talk a little bit about how you started getting involved with improv? Sure. I uh, I actually just I took my first improv class after I'd graduated a grad program at UNC Chapel Hill. Uh, I'd come to UNC Chapel Hill after going to film school in California uh, and was studying folklore. Uh, but so when you're a folklorist, you don't exactly have a path. When you graduate dental school, you that become is very a dentist. True. When you become a folklorist, there you are a... You become folklore. You become folklore. So there are a <laughs> lot of different paths. Uh, I was always interested in media. I had written for some magazines. I was trying to pursue a job in journalism. And so I was really coming to improv as a way to be a better writer. Um, I was definitely someone, and still am, like to some degree, someone who was a perfectionist in terms of I didn't want to write something unless I knew what the ending was or like what my grand scheme was, what the theme was, and had everything <laughs> perfect, uh, which meant that I wasn't writing that much. You know? <laughs> I was thinking about a lot of fun ideas and then making them too ambitious and stopping. And so I thought improv, from what I knew of it, was a way to sort of get comfortable with failing on stage and get comfortable with like just coming up with fun ideas and finding uh, a good path through whatever choice you made. I took a 101 class just on a whim okay. uh, and ended up really liking it and sort of moving quickly through all the classes and becoming a company member and just exploring the ways I could be uh, a performer and a writer. And now I probably perform 90 times more than I write, but it feels, it's like writing with your body is the way I feel about it. That's cool. So Aaron, tell us about how you got involved. So you are in Raleigh, right? And mm -hmm. these two women are at DSI, so... Talk yeah. a little bit about your scene. So I'm I'm on the stand-up scene. Uh, I really came into comedy by just having a funny life. Like, I think most people, if they're paying attention and if they're observant about the things that happen to them or the people who sit next to them or just the kind of bull crap that happens, you know, day in, day out, if you're not laughing at that, you're just not paying attention. Uh, my dad is a talker and a storyteller, and he from like the day I was born has always said, but will it make a good story? And I've always been like, all right, I gotta figure out how to make this funny and <laughs> you know, relay the, the like life lessons that you learn through laughing at things. And um, I don't know, stand-up comedy is like free therapy and at the expense of strangers, <laughs> which I also love. <laughs> so it works for me. I, I think it's a really great outlet and um, I try not to get too in my head about it, but um, you know, most of the time I, I get a good laugh here and there. So, Well, you describe your style as confessional. So tell us what that means and how do you um, find the fine line? I mean, can you confess things about everyone in your family, everyone in your friend circle, or, or how do you figure out what you can and can't talk about on stage? It's really, really tough. So I was a writer in high school and college, and I, I'd still love to think of myself as a writer, but if you're not writing, you're not a writer. So um, the things that I sort of would mute would be like my own family or like my younger sister recently was like 
do you have any jokes about me? And she was panicked. She's I just never considered that you might talk about me on stage. And I was like, no, Stacey, you're safe. You're like, I would never speak ill of you. Um, <laughs> I, if I did, I would just change her name and say it was a friend because she, <laughs> she's hilarious. Sure. Um, but it is very confessional. Like, my mother and I have a very strained relationship. Um, I, I'm going to tell her to listen to this. I don't think she'll really be all that sad about it uh, to hear it. But it is tough. You know, I get audible groans from the audience because I'll say things like, well, you know, I know that was a joke about my mom, but she'll never hear it because she doesn't come to my shows because she doesn't love me. (laughs) (laughs) And and people just don't, they don't even know what to do. They're just like, oh, and I'm like, it's okay, guys. It's okay. This is just a fun time for everyone. Aren't you so mad? (laughs) Like one of my main things I like to do is make you appreciate your own life. Like that you're not me. Like, aren't you so Mm -hmm. glad? Your mom loves you. (laughs) It's a great day because your mom loves you. No, uh, she does. She loves me a lot. I just, we have a hard way of showing it. (laughs) It is a fine line. So, okay, Erin, you kind of touched on this. What I have always wanted to know is when you're on a stage and you're doing something as improvised as even stand-up, obviously improv sketch comedy, how do you guys get a feel for the audience quickly enough to, to you know, alter how your approach to a joke is or to a scene or whatever? I Well, I think you have to read the audience, and sometimes that comes in the very first moments when you're not even on stage, when a host is on stage. A good host will get up, uh, and they will talk to the audience. They'll warm them up. And by warming them up, it's not just making them laugh. It's realizing what they're going to laugh at, like getting their age. Sometimes we'll have uh, improv hosts who will go and just be like, hey, what are you out for tonight? Like, are you on a date? Are you not? Like, And just sort of play with the audience. And you get a real vibe pretty quickly, whether or not they're an audience that wants to play with you or they're an audience that wants you to impress them. And so for us, at least, it's sort of this fine line between listening to what they're responding to and also doing what we know is right. Mm -hmm. And so that can be hard sometimes when I know if I get very serious with Bianca in a scene that I can pay it off by reversing uh, sort of uh, the context of our conversation. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so the audience may be quiet for all of that. But if I like trust my comedic instincts, I can like hold on to not needing their attention the whole time, not having to have them pay off the whole time because I know that an ultimate payoff might come off later. Sure. Uh, so there's a fine line between that, between like reading the audience and understanding what your audience is at a given time, like what age they are, what makes them laugh, what references they'll get. Well, it sounds like that has a lot to do then with knowing the people that you're working with on stage and mm-hmm. having a sense of how you both can be vulnerable together. How do you all work off stage to foster those kinds of connections? What do you need to know about the other people that are playing with you? Oh man, I think that uh, it's just it's just hanging out with people. Just uh, if you can, like when when I'm on a team or if I'm coaching a team, I think it's as important to just hang out and grab a beer or watch a dumb movie together uh, as playing together. Just getting a comfort level with each other. Like I think both with your audience and with the people that you're playing with. The shorthand I always use is manners. So if someone I've never ever played with them before and I've just met them three seconds before I go on stage, I'm less likely to go to, like, dark humor or esoteric references, uh, and it's going to be a little bit more like, cool, let's let's play the simplest version of anything we can play because we don't know each other that well yet, so let's not dig in too deep. Uh, and similarly, like, with an audience, if they seem like, oh, they're, like, around my same age, they seem like we would grab a beer in the world and that would be normal, you're probably going to use less formal manners with them, uh, that your scenes might be a little bit... Uh, looser, you might like be 
be a little bit more casual with some of the content versus if you look like my parents, I'm going to be on my very best behavior <laughs> because I need a lot of approval <laughs> and I worry that you'll yell at me later. Have y'all ever had your parents in the audience? Yes. And yes. Maybe share what that experience is like. Uh, my parents are very conservative. Uh, and one time I remember they came and it was just, we were doing musical improv. Uh, and as one of the games we got, uh, we were doing long form, which is when we get one suggestion and like just do scenes for several minutes. Uh, but sometimes we play short games. And I remember one time they came and it was just before the election and we had to do a musical improv about Mitt Romney. And I just, the whole time, I don't know if, like, I just felt their silence, whether or not it was real. <laughs> like, I was just like, oh, there is a cold silence because they're afraid of what someone might say. <laughs> like, whether or not, I don't even remember if they supported him in that election, but it was just sort of like, oh, politics is bad. Yeah. Like, don't say cuss words. Don't say politics. <laughs> like, stay safe. Yeah. My dad is my biggest fan. He's, the, like, founding member of the Aaron fan club. So, <laughs> like... Seriously. And um, he was there the first night I tried um, stand up at a bar in Raleigh. He drove down from Boone and he was, you know, he wasn't on the front row, but he was definitely within sight. And, you know, he's just beaming from the back. And my opening line was, um, well, this is the only thing, the the only thing I could ever invite my dad to that is, you know, amateur night that (laughs) that I'll be proud of. I could see him. He just lost it. He was like, what a great opening after the show. (laughs) Um, my friends and I have been talking a lot in the past year about this notion of kicking up in comedy. So, you know, if you're going to tell a joke, you're going to kick up to the systems of oppression. You're not going to kick down to the people that are already vulnerable um, in these situations. How do you all, I guess, do you feel a sense of responsibility or obligation in your work? Do you feel like comedy can be a form of social justice, a form of advocacy? And how do you craft your jokes to make it that way? I absolutely do. I think because I think that improv is the thing that I do. But improv is sort of based on this idea of challenging social norms and stereotypes. And so like a good scene is going to pit like have contrast involved. And so contrast would be in a status situation where someone is high status. Like you're not going to have a boss in a scene who's like a good boss. You're going to have a bad boss, partially because we're challenging. We're challenging those notions. uh, And like that's just good comedy. But I think also... Uh, that improv is ultimately just like so like in a way not social work but social like cultural work uh, in terms of like we are bringing people together these people are bringing with them like their uh, the things that they interact with like in in culture their communities their beliefs their ideas uh, and then they're throwing them in a very vulnerable way into scenes with each other and sort of investigating what happens if I let this person win what happens if I let like uh, this low status character, this person who is poor, this person who is, you know, whatever stereotype you want to, if I let them achieve like the ultimate thing, um, what happens in this scene in this world where I get to create it? And so I think, you know, uh, it's kind of a hard challenge and uh, it requires a little care. Like you can't have satire in a moment and like necessarily be responsible every time. But it's definitely something that I think about in the back of my ma- in my mind Like, how am I representing women? How am I, like, talking about class issues? Like, how are we dealing with race on stage? Especially, like, in a theater company that's not that diverse. I wish it was more diverse. Like, um, how are we dealing with it is something that I think that I think about a lot. Yeah, I think think about it a lot as well. Same Z. (laughs) Uh, Because, like, 
Um, I, I just I feel like a tricky thing is you are doing this off the top of your head, mm-hmm. so you don't have the luxury of being able to write it and look at it and think, oh, what are the ramifications of this? Um, I think an interesting thing is, A, it really highlights what your own tropes are that might be not helpful, that might mm-hmm. be like, oh, this is an idea I have that is a learned response because of the social structure that we live in, yeah. but maybe I don't actually think is accurate for what a homeless person is. Right. Like, I feel like a lot of times homeless characters are like, creepy or gross stupid. people play these and it's like mm-hmm. could just be sad it could just be like this is sad that this happened to this person yeah or southern women are always stupid or yeah like, or very like feminine. a lot of a lot of white improvisers really into doing sassy urban teenager voices <laughs> and they're always like <laughs> sassy and a little dumb and yeah. it's like uh i think it's more compelling if you desperately want to do that voice which like be cautious uh <laughs> but if you desperately want to do that voice Maybe she also knows a lot about earth science, and that's just a thing that she drops real casually, some, like, pretty fancy information to challenge and subvert a little bit mm-hmm. some of these expectations we have, which I think is funny because, like, sometimes if we all have, like, a story or a poem or whatever that involves, like, race, uh, many times I am one of the only not-white improvisers on stage. There's a funny moment of just watching all of them look at me, and it's like, oh, okay. <laughs> I, all right. You go first. I don't have to, we could do this about penguins and polar bears <laughs> to show the the parallels. You're like the without visible anyone. conscience in the room. Like well, you. which is, I feel like that's, that's the thing that I think is, like that's what privilege is, right, is being able to opt out of that conversation, yep. is to be able to not think about when you go on stage. Oh, great. Well, is the fact that I did kind of a bad impression of my dad, does that now sound like I'm doing our lazily racist Latino character. But I was just trying to do, like, kind of, I'm just not good at impressions. Um, <laughs> and also these, like, cultural things that you have as touch points. Like, so if you're on, like, an improv team with a whole bunch of Latinos, and I, like, touch my head and go, ah, chancla, that's a scene, that that's a cultural touch point that they know, which is like, oh, your abuelita just hit you in the head with her house shoe. That is, <laughs> that's a pretty, like, cool, we all know what that is. Whereas I would not initiate that scene uh, if I was on a team with a group of white people, because it would mm-hmm. be like, I would have to initiate that with a lot more information for you to know. Also, don't know that I want to hear you trying to play a abuelita. <laughs> I'm not sure that I'm like ready for that nope. in my life. Yeah, agreed. Erin, do you have anything to add? I do. So, stand up, like I said, uh, it's confessional for me, but in general, it's like reading your journal in front of strangers and hoping they identify with it. And so, what I find at open mics or even at book shows with these young male comics is that they're just so uninformed and not necessarily only males and it's not only white males it's just like they've never been challenged to you know they're writing in their journal and then they come up there and they throw these jokes out and I'm like wow that was really really just terrible you're a terrible terrible person and and yes like you got laughs and all those people are terrible too but you know I I think it's it's especially hard within stand-up because it's it's their like work. It's their mm-hmm. they've practiced it. They know that it lands. They've you know they think that that's what they should lean on. And the higher ups, you know, all of their stuff is you know um, edgy and polished. And I don't know. There's a huge gap I think between amateur and local comedy with what you see on HBO specials. And so not necessarily that they've earned the right to be so blatantly misogynistic or racist or anything 
But when you see it and you're like five feet away from someone who just like high fived you and now they're telling a joke about shaming a woman or fat shaming someone or anything like. <laughs> yeah, where you're like, I really, yeah, come this high five. <laughs> yeah, I don't feel great about it. Yeah, no. I said it was nice to meet you, but I'm not so sure anymore. You know, yeah. and and I think really what it takes is when it is my turn. If I really feel strongly enough, if I've not been on the mic yet, I'll be like, yeah, you know, bump that guy, <laughs> or I'll just say, huh. you know, I'll say the joke and I'll I'll be like, it's wrong, and here's why. I mean, I don't know. I think. I think that lends itself to there's always room for everyone to evolve. And so with those stand-up comics, I just always hope that I can help point them into a, a more learned Yeah, sometimes place. something that I think is maybe more prevalent in stand-up but also is an improv is like this idea of are people laughing at your jokes or with you? <laughs> like are they laughing at mm-hmm. you or with yeah. you? And so when it comes to times when gender uh, is addressed on stage, like – trying to read the audience going back to this question of reading the audience because uh, sometimes they may be laughing at a scene that ultimately is like morally bankrupt and so then if we can know that as performers on stage how do we like like, like move them. the needle how do yeah. we challenge them because ultimately we control cause and effect so like that's something that we get the ability to do at improv and hopefully we do it responsibly but um in stand-up i do think it's like this issue of like part of what you're doing, Aaron, is just being visible yeah. and having a voice out there. And like that can move the needle a lot. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. So that segues perfectly into my next question. So do y'all listen to the podcast Another Round? (laughs) It's a really great podcast. It's a BuzzFeed podcast. And the the two female hosts often have on comics and one of the the reoccurring themes that female comics often tell them is that female comics don't have groupies like a lot of male comics do have groupies on the road and they had margaret cho on a couple weeks ago and they asked her about this they're like so what's your what's your experience you've been in this industry for a very long time do you have groupies what's the deal and she said that it's not really a thing and she believes that is the case because getting up on stage and performing and drawing attention to cultural phenomena that make people uncomfortable or even telling your own story as a woman is inherently feminist. And a lot of men just read that as like radical and they don't want to be a part of that because they it's just too much for them. And I'm not asking if you guys have groupies <laughs> as much as I'm asking, do you relate to that in any sort of way? What she's saying the and, and how does your gender shape your comedy? 
I get attaboys in the audience. It always surprises me because I what I'll say if I'm the host of my showcase, I'll say, listen, these comics are real people. They have jobs tomorrow. They do this for fun or they do this for money. And if you have thought of a compliment about a joke or even if you hated it, you should go up to that person and tell them because we don't know unless you tell us. And, um, you know, so when I'm out and, and it's over and people are like, wow, that was really great. Or, you know, like this thing you said, I don't really know if you really know the context for doing drugs. I don't know how to do drugs. Um, <laughs> I'm also here to help with that. <laughs> I have a great set of jokes about how I went to dare camp and took it way too seriously. <laughs> And people in bars don't generally relate to that. So I think it's hilarious to just iterate that, you know, do you eat cocaine? I don't know. Maybe. (laughs) Um, You could just eat drugs. I don't know. Um, But I've had people come up and correct me. But I still think it's funny that I don't actually know. So I don't Mm -hmm. learn. Um, (laughs) But... You know, the the goal is not to get out of boys. It's not to have the audience congratulate you. You you want to know how how your jokes landed. And if when you thought people were going to laugh, were they laughing? Were they laughing when you didn't expect them to? And then why were they laughing? Um, something that I've experienced, I've been in stand-up for two years. I've been funny since the day I was born. Um, I didn't realize that it was only for boys or that because it's been a sort of a boys game, there are a lot of mores and social norms that are still in place for the men who host it or the men who allow you to host it or the men who run the mics or whatever to um, stack the show a certain way. And so when you first get into comedy, stand-up comedy anyway, the advice you'll get is start with your B material, fill the your sets with your C and your D material, like the bull crap, the stuff that you're not so sure how it's going to land – but end on your A material. And I'm like, okay, well, I can figure out what's the, my second funniest joke and start with that. Put in all the stuff that I'm not sure about and end on my, like, pedophile joke that always kills. <laughs> <laughs> that's the one that I like the most. But, um, you know, that's the formula. And then I realized when I was going to book shows that it was always a male opening the show and always a male closing the show. And the mm-hmm. women, if there were more than one, didn't matter in the like C and D material were the bullcrap in the middle yeah always and I'm I'm just looked around and thought wow we're I know that I'm not the funniest woman in this room right now I rarely am unless it's the bathroom by myself (laughs) (laughs) and we're not opening we're not closing our names aren't on the bills like we get added in at the last minute because oh there's two girls here great we're gonna put you both on like I don't always think it's overt I don't always think it's intentional It's just they're not so sure they can take a bet and, like, lean on a woman to open or lean on a woman to close. And so that was why I made my own comedy showcase. I just thought, like, let's have a women's, only women's showcase. We can open, we can close, we can be the bullcrap in the middle, we can be the host. And we've been killing it. And it's been really fun. I think it's interesting. Like, I think the question of, like, does gender shape your comedy is so funny because I don't feel like that ever gets posed to men. But also, like, I don't know. I've always... I've always identified as cisgender. Maybe someone who has not, but even then that would be like, oh, did your, your comedy when you were cisgender vary from your comedy once you had uh, right. fully transitioned? So I don't think it's, it's such a, I don't know. I don't know how to separate those two. That has always been a part of who I am. Uh, I do think that generally, socially speaking, comedy is rewarded 
in men more, like this sort of taking up space or demanding attention uh, is more uh, frequently like uh, traditionally masculine. It's allowed. Uh, in many ways, yeah. like uh, I did like a little informal thing that I thought was really interesting a long time ago where I asked uh, every person I knew was interested in women, every person I knew was interested in men, what they were like looking for. And when people were interested in men, one of the first three things that came up was like, only oh, like, cute, nice, funny. Uh, largely for women, like cute, nice sense of humor, which I feel like that uh, <laughs> verbal difference you get what's funny, <laughs> means like not. you laugh at my jokes. Mm. Uh, and I, I do also think like uh, with the dude lady groupy thing, that's very different than like, I feel like more women have approached me after shows to like, go have grown up fun times. <laughs> That's what like, Margaret Cho said. She said it's like it, for her, her groupies are queer. Yeah, because you're usually already like I think doing comedy as a woman already necessarily subverts a little bit the expectation of what is uh, really traditionally thought of as feminine. Yeah, like a woman came up to me after a show once. This is not like uh, this is a groupie story. This is <laughs> this is a, a sort of compliment that I thought was funny and told me what we how we viewed women uh, and said like, oh, it was like a really funny show. And I was like, oh, thank you. That's really nice of you to say. And she said. I love that you, like, don't care how unattractive you look on stage. <laughs> and I remember thinking, like, that probably could have been phrased better. <laughs> You're right, though. Like, I definitely don't go into show thinking, like, I super hope that when I play this old man character, people, like, still want to bang it. <laughs> like, and that's, I think, a thing that is expected of women generally is to always look, uh, always just be p- pleasing scenery. And that's not conducive to being able to do comedy, yeah. uh, which is filled with, like, ugly <laughs> truths whether it's stand-up and, like, they're really raw things about yourself. Uh, and you're literally the only thing on the stage. Yeah, and it's like, well, I'm sorry, you're going to have to look at me and not think about whether or not you want to bang me yeah. for, like, three seconds of your day. Like, <laughs> just deal with it. Uh, which is just so, like, silly. But I like that, like, DSI does, um, like, a ladies' brunch, which is, like, open to everybody, and it's not, like, you don't do comedy there. It's just a hangout. But that a lot of, uh, and I think this is certainly true in stand-up as well, a lot of the like, connections are made at the bar. A lot of people asking you to be in a show with you is because they like being in a room with you. And if I think you're a phenomenal performer but I've never talked to you, I'll feel weird about asking you to be in my show probably because yeah. I don't know you. And I think that for women, the expectation of the bar, that experience of being at the bar after the shows is different. Hmm. Either they have to navigate uh, a potentially like romantic interest thing and that's complicated or a lot of women in comedy um, – in my experience anyway, are like I have a full-time job and so I don't want to just focus on comedy and going to the bar all night. Or I have children that I want to spend time with or I've got like a family. And I think there's more young men who can devote their whole time to comedy. Mm -hmm. So like these opportunities for people to like get a chance to meet and network that are not the traditional uh, venues that are really catered to like single dudes in their early 20s (laughs) are really helpful. Yeah, I uh, a podcast I really love is called Call Your Girlfriend. Mm-hmm. Uh, and on that podcast, they talk a lot about this idea of shine theory. Uh, like, I don't shine if you don't shine. And so it's all about having, like, this network of women who are sort of helping each other, propping each other up. And I subscribe to that a lot because it's sort of this idea of if we just look at the statistics – then we're going to get some really depressing numbers of like how many women are in leadership or how many women are on shows or like how many women are on Herald Night at our theater. But if instead we focus on the people who are there and supporting them by like having shows like Aaron's Eyes Up Here or having shows like Our Lady Night, 
um, then we we get to showcase them and shine and like they get to shine and people get to like uh, like love them and appreciate them for who they are instead of having them like rise to this token level where they have to like uh, deal with all the politics thereof that might fall out. And I think a lot of this has to do with like I personally, you know, feel like that you know, I've been rewarded. I mean, maybe this is like, maybe this is blind, but like, I don't feel like I was held back because of my gender. I don't feel like I was elevated because of my gender. I felt like I clicked with this art form uh, and I moved up and I, I did get some lucky breaks in terms of people like um, believing in me. But, uh, but at the same time, like, I do feel like I was a part of a meritocracy. Um, but I think, you know, we can look at this in other areas. Like, like race in the criminal justice system where you can't oppress a people for a long time and then say, oh, by the way, you're on the same level. Why aren't you, why aren't you like rising to the same like statistics? Like yeah. you can't say like, you can't keep women out of co- comedy because you've acculturated your showcases to be right. that way. And then all of a sudden be like, no, we're cool, but not giving them enough stage time that they can actually get to a place right. where they can perform at the same level. Right. So it definitely is a lot about like getting that experience. Like I feel very lucky to have started doing comedy at DSI because I've had so much access to stage time. Mm-hmm. Um, and that has really raised my confidence level. And so other women who are coming up, I think my job in a leadership position is to like give them access to experience. Say like these are shows where like we haven't booked a team because you can sign up. And it is important that you do because having this experience will let you rise to another level. Yeah. And I think like women in these leadership positions are so important and because in the comedy world, because it has historically been traditionally, uh, traditionally male for a super long time and like traditionally like white, cisgendered, <laughs> straight male, like a pretty specific type. Uh, a, that's comedy, that rewards comedy that caters to that audience. Mm-hmm. Sometimes women think that jokes are hilarious that men don't get as much because it doesn't resonate with their life experience as well but women which think it's great and that's a huge audience to appeal to yeah but these women in a leadership role i think are helpful because you can see like oh this is something i could rise to there are people that can acknowledge uh sort of my experiences and like i remember taking a class where somebody had brought up like a, a male character had called the female character sexy and the woman was like i like trying to be sexy like gamely it was clearly uncomfortable <laughs> and it was like pointed out uh, by a female teacher like oh you don't have to actually play sexy to yes and that your character just has to believe that they're sexy to yes and it mm-hmm. which like oh that's a thing that a male teacher wouldn't think of because they're not pimped in to be playing being playing like a sexy like lady all mm-hmm. the time yeah like a, a, a female stand-up coach is going to be able to give you notes that understand your experience a little bit better yeah. so all of these things i think can can be so valuable uh, in the world of of women in comedy, you guys know how before the show I was telling you I don't like get emotional on a daily basis. <laughs> <laughs> I do recall. I don't know this this conversation getting to me. <laughs> we're just we're all syncing up right now. That's what's going on. I find out That's who the alpha is. Right. <laughs> do you all feel like there's a particular part of your identity that comedy has allowed you to embrace more or become more? proud of because of sort of what you're doing through your work or because of you because of the fact you have to appear alone physically on a stage it really like harkens back to my tomboy time so like all the times that you would play kickball or softball or anything in the dugout like in the in the the red the red mud of charlotte and uh 
and the boys, when it was your turn to kick, they would say, bring it in. And I was like, sure, bring it in. And then I would always just kick it way over shortstop, way over third. <laughs> like, like, I could kick really, really hard. They just always seem to forget. And so it's not that I, I think I'm the funniest woman who's ever lived and will ever live. It's that I like surprising people by challenging what they think this blonde-haired crazy lady with orange glasses or blue glasses or whatever I'm wearing is going to say. I mean, what did you think I was going to like read an oatmeal recipe to you tonight? No. <laughs> that would be helpful for I have me. really terrible thoughts and I thought I'd share them with you tonight. Like it just sort of reminds you that you are a funny person, not a funny woman, and that the question are women funny is irrelevant. I I feel like uh improv has just expanded my confidence both in terms of like recognizing myself as a voice but also making space for other people you know uh because so much of improv is about being a really active listener and setting up your partners to succeed and i think as a woman especially someone who grew up you know in the south you are taught that like the way you do that is like to make nice meals and get out of the way or clean up the dishes or like be of the space not in the space and so being a part of an improv team it really makes you be in the space, be committed, be totally there. Uh, and I think that it's really expanded sort of my my willingness to say yes, both to myself and to other people in a more active, more confident way. Yeah, I think it just made me like a better human in all ways. Like the the actual like rules of improv, like the yes ending and the like, if this is true, then what else is true? And just the team aspect has been like, really phen- phenomenal and like our level one at DSI one thing we do is like a sharing focus walk where okay sometimes you're going to give focus and then you're going to stop walking and someone else knows it's their turn and sometimes you're going to take focus and the thing I always do is ask people like did you feel more comfortable with one or another and every time the women are more comfortable like I felt very comfortable giving focus but taking mm. focus felt very uncomfortable for me oh, and like wow. yep that's true for <laughs> a lot of people I, I try to not highlight that that's a woman thing in class because I don't mm. want to make them feel uncomfortable or like make anyone or men who are also uncomfortable about taking focus feel like this is a gendered thing. But uh, hmm. I do find that I've, I've noticed that as frequently women. Uh, and I think it's nice. And it's like a little bit punk rock in a real soft, <laughs> friendly way to be like, yeah, you can totally, you're allowed to take up space hmm. and you're also allowed to shut up. You don't have to scream all the time just to be heard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, y'all, thank you so much for joining us tonight. That is all the time that we have, but we loved having you guys on. <laughs> this was fun. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, we're going to have to come to that brunch sometime. And so the showcase. <laughs> yeah. She and Her is a radio show and podcast written and produced by me and Sandra. We produce our shows every Thursday at 6 at the studios of 104.7 WA2P in Hillsboro. Our podcast is available on SoundCloud and iTunes. You can subscribe to us there and follow along. And if you're listening through iTunes, you should rate us. Rate us, please. Rate please. them. Yes. Rate them. Five. Rate ten. them well. Yeah. A million. Yeah. <laughs> a Thank plus you. plus Even would do again. If you're feeling really, you know, bald, leave a comment. Why not? <laughs> um, you can also follow us on sheandherradio.com and our Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. At She and Her Radio. Exactly. Our theme music is produced by Cameron Laws and Sam Gerwick. Thanks so much for listening, y'all. We will see you guys next week.
Step onto the legendary clay courts of Roland Garros, where the world's best players battle it out for a chance to win the French Open title. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV, live in HD. Don't miss a moment with daily live coverage and match replays on demand, beginning Monday, May 20th. Be there for all the unforgettable moments. Stream now with Tennis Channel Plus. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.